How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 76 of X-Lapsed, where I can't shake the feeling like I've got a frog in my throat here. I've been trying to drink as much as I can to uh, try to straighten this all out, but uh, apologies if I sound a little froggy at some points during this episode. I'm not getting sick again from what I can tell, but uh, I don't know. I feel like i got to constantly clear my throat, which I will spare you from as best as possible. And as always, we'll endeavor to do our best. But today, we're going to be talking about New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 10. This had a June 2020 cover date, and our story is called Parasomnia, which uh, I actually researched to find out what in the world Parasomnia is. And apparently it's a sleep disorder that causes abnormal behavior while sleeping. Things like talking, moving around, it's to the point where other people who are around you might think you're actually awake, but... You're really asleep. So I'm guessing that these behaviors extend to uh, warping reality. I guess we'll find out. Now, this issue is written by Ed Brisson with art by Flaviano or Flaviano. Colors, Carlos Lopez. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa white Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. And went on sale June 10th of 2020. So this is another one of those issues from the post uh, well, I wouldn't say post-pandemic since it ain't over yet, but, uh, you know, that, that, that two-month span where there were no comics. This is coming off the heels of that. So we have a cover date and an on-sale date that are both in June again. Um, now, this is a cover. Uh, this cover is both, like, spectacular and horrifying here. It's uh, our, you know, new mutant here, our new new mutant from, uh, uh, was it, Carnelia, Russia, uh, Tashi Rapina, the girl with the braces here, and we see this big close-up on her face and her mouth, and, you know, where, like, the brackets on the teeth are from the braces. Instead of there being actual brackets, it's actually new mutant heads. So, uh, we get to see all of our favorites there as brackets on braces on a very horrifying face here. It's really well done. <laughs> it's a really well done cover. It's just one of those things that, it's like, ugh, kind of weird. Anyway, we open, and we are right there with our reality-warping new friend, Tashi Rapina. And, uh, of course, she is the girl with the braces and the weird right eye. Now, she's begging for forgiveness inside her inky black warp bubble thing. And those with her are uh, Karma, Chamber, Magma, and a couple of Russian security guard soldiers. They're there mimicking her. So, basically, everything she's saying, they're saying as well. And this is actually a really cool way of depicting such a strange scene here. It's just like what she's saying is reverberating through all of those within her, you know, sphere of influence. Your literal sphere of influence. Really, really well done. I liked it. 
Next, we go right to our roll call, where we go over our cast of characters, and the folks we'll be focusing on today are Boom Boom, Chamber, Magma, Mirage, Karma, Cypher, Mondo, Armor, Wolfsbane, Wildside, Glob, and Magic. From here, our customary double-page spread of creds. Then back to comics, and we're back outside. Boom Boom accidentally steps in some of this reality-warping goop... And uh, she and Danny note that this uh, odd and, of course, literal sphere of influence is spreading, and uh, potentially spreading rapidly. And this will put a nearby apartment building in very, very severe danger before long. Now, the Russian... I don't know if they're soldiers, if they're rent-a-cops, whatever they are. These Russian folks, or these Carnelian folks, uh, they don't appear to be all that interested in helping out. Um, In fact, the only reason they're letting the New Mutants get as close as they are is because they're hoping that the warp bubble actually swallows them up. So, you know, I guess it's a, one of them good news, bad news situations. Uh, Danny asked Tabitha to try to talk reason with the Russians in Russian, since Tabitha showed us she could do that last issue. Before she can, however, the cavalry arrives, and it's uh, Doug, Mondo, Rain, Armor, and of course, Wildside. Boom Boom is quite displeased to see Wildside, and she calls him uh, Clowny McWolverine Light. Which, uh, I know I've been giving Tabitha a hard time over the past few issues, but uh, this is fair, (laughs) you know. Uh, I know I probably compared him to Wolverine back in the day, too, just because of his, you know, Wolverine-y hairdo. Uh, Then again, I also compared Feral, Beast, and Matsuo Tsuraba to Wolverine for the very same reason. In fairness to me, I was 11, so there you go. (laughs) Now, while the New Mutants try to put a plan together... We shift scenes to the Pershy Palace, which is the home of the Prime Minister Prokopovich, Prokopovich of Carnelia. I think I might have gotten that right one of those times, but I wouldn't bet on it. Now, he's stirred awake by some of his handlers in order to deal with some media and public relations due to this weird incident. And so he gets up, he curses the mutants, and he heads off to make himself presentable. We head back to Krakoa, where a couple of things are bubbling. One of those things is a subplot we're headed toward, and the other is some vegetarian laksa. We meet up with Glob, who is gathering eggs from his little chicken coop. Uh, Magic saunters up to talk with him about the Pilger incident on the Bohusk farm from a few issues back. She wants to know how those cartellis knew that there were mutants there. Glob talks about, well, our favorite online rag... Docs, which he refers to as either Mutant Docs, Muty Docs, or Docs All Mutants. Uh, we know what he's talking about, though, right? Now, Magic is beyond ticked off that Docs, this Docs site would, you know, dox the mutants by publishing their addresses online. You know, knowing that they're putting these mutants in danger. Glob offers Magic some laksa. From here, we go to an info page, and it's a recipe for Glob's vegetarian laksa. Oddly, and maybe not oddly, I don't know a whole lot about vegetarianism, but it includes eggs. Which always mystified me why eggs can be included in a vegetarian diet. I, I guess it would be like a vegan thing to leave them out, but still, I, I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand why I think of eggs as, as meat, in a way. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Anyway, if you want to make Glob's vegetarian laksa, more power to you. I see this is kind of a waste of a page. It's a little cute, maybe a little too cute, but we'll move on. We jump back to comics and we're back on Carnelia, or Carneria, whatever, wherever we are. Doug is analyzing this inky warp balloon and he finds it fascinating. To which Danny asks if you, you know, maybe don't fall in love with it. And that's not cool. I mean, this dude just traveled halfway around the world to save your ass. So maybe, 
maybe just give the guy a minute. Uh, Doug deduces that everything swirling around inside the bubble, they are the dreams of this little girl, Tashi Rapina. Well, nightmares, actually. Boom Boom tells Cypher to stop Doug-splaining, <clears throat> which makes me want to see her dropped into a volcano. She then suggests that she just toss a time bomb into the bubble. When did Tabitha become such an asshole? Uh, is this more of the next wave effect? Because I don't like this. Anyway, Doug lays out a plan. Now, since this bubble is the result of Tashi trying to make sense of her nightmares, he suggests that maybe they try to get close enough to her inside the bubble in order to give her good dreams, which is probably where Wildside will come into play. But the question is, how are they going to do this? Well, Danny has an idea, and she asked the group if they'd ever seen the movie Poltergeist. I have not, although that, you know, is probably not a surprise to many of you listening. I do, however, remember the commercials for uh, Poltergeist scaring the bejesus out of me as a little kid, though. It's like, you know, there's a TV in most rooms in your house, or the most rooms that you congregate in your house, and then to <laughs> to know that, you know, the, the, the TV was where the bad things were is uh, it's a scary thing for a kid. Anyway, while Danny puts her gimmick in place, the Prime Minister arrives on the scene to make a statement on live television. Now, he suggests that this entire thing is just a stunt planned by the Krakoans as a result of Carnelia declining to sign the treaty. And you know, that's a good and reasonable enough angle. I think that enough people would buy that. Now, he suggests that the New Mutants are here to quote-unquote fix a situation that they created in the first place to get some good PR, and also to show the Carnelian people that, you know, the mutants are needed. So again, reasonable. He then orders the New Mutants to be arrested. We'll see how that works. From here, it's an info page, and it's from the Docs website. They're reporting that mutants are in Carnelia, and that the Prime Minister has issued an arrest warrant. Interestingly enough, there's also a call to arms to Carnelians to forward all of their mutant footage to the Docs site. So, uh, any Carnelian citizens who happen to be boots on the floor or happen to be in the area, get some footage, send it into Docs. I'm, I'm really liking this subplot. It's, it's really cool. Uh, back to comics, and Danny is about to enact her poltergeist plan. And to do so, she has affixed a long strap to armor, like around her waist. And then armor has, you know, erected her armor bubble, which has encased herself, Doug, Mondo, and Wildside. Now together, they're going to enter this inky warp balloon while Danny holds the other end of this strap. You know, so she can maybe yank them out if they get into trouble. Because how are you going to get them out otherwise? Now, Armor and company, they enter, and immediately cannot see their way back out, which is moderately concerning. We then get a weird two-page spread that gives us a sort of kind of tour of this reality warp bubble, and it's pretty neat. Uh, the, teen the team ultimately gets close enough to Tashi to maybe reach out to her, so Wildside is going to be the man on point here. He needs to reach out to her without letting any of the inky, reality-warped atmosphere in. And so, he goes to touch her. Which really freaks her out. In fairness to Tashi, w w would you want Wildside touching you? I, I don't think so. Anyway, the inky stuff seeps into Armor's armor. Uh, Doug is sure that Danny will feel the struggling and decide to yoink them out. Unfortunately for them, it would seem that the strap snapped and they be trapped. We wrap up with Hisako being greeted by her dead parents, and we are to be continued. 
Next episode, welcome to the Double Digits, X-Force number 10. So what is there to say about this issue? Um, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. I enjoyed it. Um, but it's... You know, I'm trying to reframe the way I'm looking at these books here because I feel like maybe... Maybe I've been a little unfair uh, over the past several episodes here where I might be expecting a little bit too much from these books. And I think the way that I'm doing this might actually... It's not benefiting anyone, myself especially, I suppose, since it's mostly affecting me for having to try to analyze these books. And and I'm thinking back to like the last issue of Marauders that we talked about that I, I really didn't come away from enjoying quite as much as I, I've enjoyed other issues. Um, Excalibur was okay. Uh, this was similarly okay. Um... I would say that had I read these just in like a, just as a regular afternoon read, you know, without any sort of designs on talking about it or trying to make any sort of, you know, half-assed analysis of it, I'd probably enjoy it a whole lot more than I did. So I might be doing the books a disservice by doing this the way I am. Um, even thinking back to X-Men number nine, which... <laughs> I really thought I was going to wrap that episode up by saying, hey, maybe this is done, <laughs> you know, because I shouldn't come away from this, from recording an episode with such negativity. And I had plenty of negativity with X-Men number nine. I really thought that like, okay, this might be it. <laughs> this might be done. So with New Mutants number 10 here, it was a good enough issue. Um, you know, Jason might have said it best when he said that uh, Hoxpox had set us up for the extraordinary, right? And Docs is not really giving us that every time out. And, and it couldn't. I mean, it couldn't possibly, right? We're at episode 76, so we've read, what, 64 of these Docs books? You know, taking out the 12 Hoxpox issues? So we're at like 64 issues into this uh, Dawn of X line. They can't all be, you know, just huge, massive successes. We do need bridging issues. We do need arcs to build things on. And this, this is one of those arcs. And I really can't hold that against it. That said, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot better than last issue. Though I still am really over the, the way Boom Boom's being uh, depicted here. I think she is really, really awful. Uh, but uh, everything else worked for me. I, I liked uh, I liked the plan uh, with Danny's uh, poltergeist gimmick, getting her friends into the inky balloon to try to try to uh, rescue their friends and uh, and maybe fix Tashi a little bit. I thought that was a cool idea. I like the idea of um, of Docs. Docs, I think, is going to be a really, really fun concept to uh, to be explored and, and mined over the next several issues. I think that there's a lot of meat on that bone, and uh, I'd like to find out who's behind it. I think that might be a very interesting reveal. Hopefully, I'm not setting myself up for a disappointment, but I like the idea of it, uh, because it's something you could totally see happening. Uh, right now, things like social media and the internet, they're, they're ubiquitous. You know, uh, how many people do you know who don't have a smartphone in their pocket at all times? How many people do you know who aren't constantly taking pictures? 
uh, with their phones and taking pictures of themselves, taking pictures of where they're at, taking pictures of their, you know, the plate on their table. It's just what society's become. And now we have this Docs magazine that's like, hey, you you can be part of this too. You know, you're taking pictures anyway, just send them to us. And it's all in the name of uh, doxing and outing the mutants of the world. I think this is, if if anything, this is what I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how it plays out. Whereas this issue here in Carnelia, it was decent enough. I like the uh, Prime Minister playing with the propaganda and playing with the PR to to make it look as though this is all a ruse. You know, they're... they're there is no problem here. This is something that the Krakoan mutants had planned and placed in order to you know, in, inspire fear and a need for them in, Carn- in Carnelia. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, so yeah, outside of the way um, Tabitha was portrayed, I really don't have any complaints about this issue. I, I think Flaviano did a great job here. Everybody looked awesome. Uh, the the surreality of the inky bubble looked great. It was really really cool. Um, had a bunch of like weird stuff that you might picture in a kid's brain. You know, like this candy in there. There's a whole bunch of just like weird stuff, and it, it was really cool. Don't know that I'm too interested in the cliffhanger with Hizako seeing her parents. Eh, I mean that's. <laughs> I don't think that has a- any real oomph to it, but. It'll get us to where we need to be, so that's okay. So, yeah, not a whole heck of a lot to say about this one. It was just another issue. It was an issue I enjoyed. It's probably not going to rock everybody's socks, but uh, it's an enjoyable little diversion, and it was a decent enough issue of the post-Hickman New Mutants. So I'd give it a net positive, and, uh, I mean, if you're interested in seeing how the New Mutants are being treated after Hickman left, this is a fine place to go. You know, so this is not bad at all. If you, and like I said, if you're reading these, if you're reading 9 and 10 back-to-back back, uh, without having to stop to write a 20-page script about each one, you're probably going to like it a whole lot more than, than I made it the first issue sound. So there's that. <laughs> That's everything I have to say about New Mutants number 10. Let's dip into the mailbag here because we got quite a bit to discuss. We're going to start with Damien. And this is regarding Giant Size X-Men Nightcrawler number one. He says, It's time for me to come and disagree with everything you said. Actually, that's not true. We agree that this comic should not be described as a Nightcrawler comic. He's barely involved. We also agree that this book looks amazing. It's so wonderful to see Alan Davis inking his own stuff. I don't think I've seen him do that since the New Mutants annual that introduced Psylocke many decades ago. And yes... So far, we are on the same page here. This is not a Nightcrawler comic, and Alan Davis's work looked fairly spectacular here. It was very, very good. Very, very good. Uh, Damien continues. Lockheed's appearance is a continuity gaffe. When I first read this issue, I thought it was fine, as we saw Lockheed heading to Krakoa in the last issue of Marauders. I assumed his arrival was off-panel, and in absence of Kitty, he'd pair up with Kurt and Ilyana. Sadly, the next issue of Marauders shows his return, so I lose by no prize. I was glad to see him here, though, as he was a key element in the best-remembered Sidri Hunter story. They would definitely consider him a threat. Generally speaking, this was a positive for me. The issues with this story were editorial, but it was a fun one-and-done. And And I don't remember anything with the Sidri, so 
<laughs> for all I knew, uh, this was the first time we were seeing them. Uh, so I didn't know anything about that. But I think my problem is the same as yours here, is in that um, it's definitely more editorial than anything. I feel like, you know, and I've, I've made this observation about comics fandom, and actually any sort of hobby fandom, we're a little too close to the pros now, and we know how the sausage is made, and um, I get kind of hung up on worrying about things that'll only serve to lessen my enjoyment of a story. These are Chris problems, you know, totally. I just see all these editors, and a head of X credited on all of these books, and I have this Maybe it's a Pollyanna-ish, pie-in-the-sky hope that the stories we're getting are being delivered in a more linear fashion. It feels like just another way that they're disrespecting the week-to-week reader. Um, And, you know, it doesn't all fall on them. I'm pretty disappointed how we've all just come to expect our stories to happen out of sequence. We're cool with it now. Um, Back in the long ago... Something like this would have been called out far and wide. There'd be letters pages dedicated to why Lockheed showed up here before he actually came back. X-Fans would try to make sense of it, and now we just accept it. And many of us will, like, continue to rate it a 10 out of 10, (laughs) you know? I, I don't know what happened to the fandom here where this sort of sloppy work... And, I mean, the story was fine. The editorial is sloppy, and we just let it happen. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a little disappointing. Uh, Damien continues. Great to hear Andrew agreeing with my reading of the Cyclops and Wolverine scene. I definitely agree with him that Havoc and Wolverine are a better team. In fact, Meltdown is sat near the top of my rereading pile at the moment. There is some fun stuff coming with Havoc and Hellions, but there's no bonding with Wolverine. And yeah, you know, that Cyclops-Wolverine scene from X-Men number 7 turned out to be such... So much nothing, right? Um, I still remember the day Bleeding Cool or whatever horrible comics news site first shared these panels because it was very, very strange because I had friends on social media who I hadn't heard from in months who were suddenly reaching out to ask me about this. And it's like, have you heard about this? What's going on with this? Is, Is this what they're doing now? And, you know, the overwhelming tone, it wasn't anger, you know, which... I'm pretty sure disappointed the news hacks, but uh, it was more of like a collective eye-rolling, you know? Um, It was just like, oh, it's Marvel, (laughs) and Marvel's marveling again. Um, And, you know, Meltdown is interesting, because I don't know that I've ever actually read it. Uh, I've got it sitting on my shelf, like right behind me right now, but I can't remember if I've actually read it. I do know... For a fact that I did read the Havoc and Wolverine team-up trading card from Marvel Universe Series 3 like several dozen times, which made me particularly excited to read the story itself, I just can't recall if I ever did. I don't know. Maybe one of these days I'll have to find out. Uh, Damien continues with, I love the way you're so diplomatic about runs you don't like. I wish I could be as fair-minded about the Whedon run. I only read the first trade, but I thought it was horrible. It was infected by a bad case of Jeff Johnsitis in that he was desperately trying to reset the book to a previous version that he was nostalgic for. I don't care that he did it well, as it was a backwards move. And you know me. When I have an opinion that conflicts with anyone else, the mainstream, just anybody, I automatically assume that I'm wrong. <laughs> now, that said, one of my least liked phrases, which I hear and see more than more often than I'd like to, is... 
I think we can all agree, dot, dot, dot. And it's usually followed by something that, sure, an echo chamber will agree with, but you should never assume that everyone will agree. And that's something that I try to keep in mind to keep me from making sweeping statements and generalizations. Even something as reviled as the Chuck Austin run, or, hey, Major X, (laughs) I, I try to keep my opinions clearly labeled as opinions. I never try to assume that my opinion is the popular one or the only one. Now, the Whedon run, for me, that might, that might have been a bit of a tainted well for me due to, you know, stop me if you heard this one before, lousy or absentee editorial. <laughs> you know, just kind of like I've been complaining about, about the uh, giant size Nightcrawler here. One thing about the Whedon run, before a single issue came out, that got stuck in my craw was that Marvel and Joe Quesada started walking back some of their positions. Most notably, and for folks who were fans of Marvel Comics around the turn of the century, there was one that they felt very, 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 very strongly about that was called Dead is Dead. Which is to say, hey writers, if you're going to engage in stunt writing, if you're just going to kill long-standing and beloved characters... Well, you're not going to be bringing them back, so make sure you're done with them. You know, uh, once they're dead, they are dead. So maybe, maybe don't be stunt writers. Maybe tell stories instead. So a couple of notable X-deaths from the turn of the century were Psylocke, the Betsy Braddock version, in Extreme X-Men, and Colossus, who sacrificed himself to cure the legacy virus. Now, Chris Claremont intended on Psylocke's death being short-lived. No pun intended, I guess. Joe Casada said, no, dead is dead. Grant Morrison intended on using Colossus during his run on New X-Men. Casada said, no, dead is dead, which led to Emma Frost getting her diamond-hard skin secondary mutation. Then, the Buffy guy wanders in and decides he wants to slum it in comics and he wants to rekindle the Kitty Colossus romance. Joe Casada says, sure, no problem. Eh, because, well, he's a star effer, and he was mad at Morrison for heading back across the street to D.C. So, yeah, I was already annoyed at the Whedon run before I read a single page of it. Is that unfair? Yeah. Do I owe it another try? Maybe. Will I ever get around to it? I don't know. <laughs> so, you, you know, if one day you all wake up and see an episode of Astonishing X Lapsed in your feeds, well, then you'll know. Uh, now... I think there's definitely a place in comics for the Jeff Johns-itis. So long as it makes sense and it doesn't just absolutely crap on everything that came before it that the writer didn't agree with. I feel like Johns himself had a pretty good handle on that when he wanted to. Of course, you know, uh, pushing legacy characters like Kyle Rayner and Wally West into irrelevance aside, of course, uh, because when he wanted his Hal and Barry back, he did not care. (laughs) What characters were being were caught in that crossfire? But I feel like he did a lot of good, and, and there's there's a lot of potential to do good in there. But man, uh, yeah, Kyle and Wally really really got boned. But but to you know to the Whedon run, like I said, it was a tainted well for me to begin with, and uh, maybe I owe it another try. Maybe I don't. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, Damien. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Next, 
Andrew Franklin is talking about X-Men number nine. He says, I'm a big sci-fi fan and I love me some space stuff, but I have to agree that it's becoming a bit overused in Hoxpox docks. Outer space is treated like their backyard at this point, with some living on the moon and Shi'ar space just a short wormhole away. It makes it less special. And yeah, it's true. Space stories, as little as I ever cared for them, because I don't, they at least felt novel and different, and maybe for a lack of a better term, earned back in the day? Because it's like, hey, you told a bunch of stories and now you want to go to space? Yeah, sure, you earned it, go do it. Now, it's kind of like we're reading like a mutant Green Lantern Corps, where it's almost a surprise when they have an Earth-based adventure. And it's, uh, it's a bit much. <laughs> Andrew continues... On the other hand, if this brave new world is about breaking old paradigms and evolving the X-Men, then I can see it being a part of that evolution. I can almost hear Magneto now saying, Let the humans live on Earth, the mutants have the stars. The X-Men are closely associated with spacefaring adventures, so maybe moving more of their population and stories into space is the next step. Making it less special might just be the point. And yeah, that's certainly possible. But it would be a direction I would not care for at all. Um, speaking of X-Men in space, did I imagine this? Or was there a time where the X-Men actually lived in space? Like recently, like during Mute Marvel's feudal push of the boring Inhumans, did they send the X-Men to live in space? Uh, this is an era I've never read, but I could swear I saw something about the X-Men being off-planet or maybe like in their own dimension Maybe it was a fever dream. I kind of hope it was a fever dream, actually, but I could have sworn that I read something about that. I could be wrong. I've got a stack of unread X books, probably. If I stacked them up, it would probably be... I'd probably have to have two stacks because it would reach the ceiling. Uh, Andrew continues. (laughs) Beyond that, I like the New Mutant space story, but this King Egg saga was kind of meh. To me, the broods suffer from diminishing returns. The original Paul Smith story was great. The Outback era story was alright. And the early X-Men Volume 2 story is more notable for having Ghost Rider in it and dealing with Gambit's life in New Orleans. Uh, After that, they're all rather generic. Lionel Francis Yu draws some very cool-looking brood, though. I didn't mind the intro prelude with the Kree, but it really didn't add anything for me. The ending was very abrupt and made me ask why we even went through all of this. If, there was, if this was supposed to be funny, it fell flat. Diminishing Returns is a great way to describe the brood. Uh, my first encounter with them was that, uh, that X-Men Ghost Rider Nolan story, actually. That was the first time I ever encountered the brood. And I think in more recent years, the brood has become less of like a threat to the X-Men and more of a... You know, like when there's a big Marvel event and they start listing, it's like, we have the Kree, the Skrulls, the Badoon, the brood. It's like... Just another species in space sort of thing, which I feel like might be an attempt to make them feel more special, but to me it makes them feel like just just another in a cluster of interchangeable generic Marvel aliens. I don't know. And I the ending of X-Men number nine, you know, I, I, I was going to say I don't want to say hate because hate's a strong word, but I hated it. I hated that issue. I really considered making some changes to this program after reading that issue because I was like, I I can't do another one of these. I can't do a single issue that that frustrates me so much because who wants to listen to an idiot like me talk about something they dislike? Um, And I just did not... Oh, I did not like that issue at all. I hated that issue. (laughs) 
and I'm so beyond tired of the space stuff. Um, oof. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if it was supposed to be funny, I didn't think it was. I, I well, I was like, okay, let me let me just put this in the in the box and never look at it again. Andrew continues. Damien said in his email that his favorite X-Men period is from Uncanny 200 through 279, and that's also my favorite period. I can't help but agree with his statement that change is the hallmark of the great X-Men stories, and while I love the constant change Claremont put the team through in his last few years, it's the scrappy, ragtag nature of the team that I hold dearest. The outsider underdogs, walking the line between public heroes and outlaws, that's what I loved about the X-Men. They haven't really fit that mold for a long time, but Krakoa is probably the furthest from that that they've been. Very, very good points. Very, very good points. And uh, that run, 200 to 279, was such a strong period uh, of for the X-Men. And I actually, you know, you guys know me. I came in through uh, Lob Del Niciesa. So it was, like, staggering going back and reading these. Um, this was, you know... To so many people, this was the purest the X-Men have been. And there's a lot of merit to that statement, and I, I largely agree with it. But coming in from the you know the 90s crossover event to event to event to gimmick after gimmick and shadowy new character to shadowy new character, and then going to these, these pure X-Men stories. And I found these via Marvel's awesome and... Much, much missed Black and White Essentials volumes. I still have them on the bottom shelf of my bookcase right here behind me. I love them so, so much. <laughs> it was such a treat to see this um, because it was it was familiar, but at the same time it felt more real than the stuff that even brought me in. I could see what made the X-Men so special outside of all the hype, outside of... And I mean... I love the 90s stuff. The 90s stuff is my wheelhouse. But there was a lot of hype there, a lot of gimmicks, um, a lot of stunts. But when you go back to those 80s stories that, in comparison, feel kind of low-key, but they're just so good. Uh, and, you know, since then, I've gone back and I've bought almost the entire Claremont run as single issues. And I had plans with giving of giving it like a proper issue by issue read through, where I could you know look at letters pages and ads and all sorts of stuff, Bull, the bullpen bulletins. My problem is that I'd actually want to talk about it as I did it, and really, who's got time for that? So maybe one of these days, maybe when we're all caught up, <laughs> we're past uh, X of tens, and who knows? We'll see. But uh, yes, those were great, great stories here. And your point is well taken, that Krakoa is is as like polar opposite as you're going to get from those stories. And uh, yeah, it's it doesn't, you know, discount either one as being better or worse than the other, but it is, it is definitely staggering how different it is, for sure. Um, Andrew continues with, That said, here I am, plugged into the X-Men like no other time in the last 17 or so years. I attribute this more to Chris and his excellent work than anything else, but even I can't say that this new approach hasn't succeeded in getting me interested again. And that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for, for saying that. That's just really awesome. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, I always feel bad about writing such long emails, so until Mantis and all that Celestial and the Madonna nonsense shows up, make my next lapse. Never feel bad about writing long emails, for sure, because I enjoy them. 
I enjoy sharing them. And uh, from the sounds of it, uh, a lot of the listeners enjoy hearing them as well. So, I mean, this is such a fun little community that we're building here. And uh, it's, it's stuff, it's, you know, it's letters like this and from everyone else that just makes this so special. So thank you so much. Uh, from one Andrew to another, we're going to Andrew in Belfast, our pal. And he says... I'm really enjoying journeying through all the episodes of X-Lapsed with you and reminding me of the sheer enjoyment I've had with this Hickman era of X-Men. I'm now going back and reading some select issues on comiXology, because obsessives like me now own these books in single-issue, trade paperback, and electronic. Firstly, I just wanted to say that for my money, this is the most original era of the X-Men since Morrison's run. There aren't member berries or homages to character cliches in this era of books. They're gripping and original in the main, and immersive to a much greater extent than in recent years that preceded them. In many ways, I find the tone very similar to Morrison's run, in fact, and the art is beautiful in this current selection of books, with each title having a very distinct look, with the exception of Fallen Angels, which was quite bland. (laughs) And uh, I've seen the Hickman run compared to the Morrison run, at least in tone, scope, and originality, a bunch of times, and I totally agree. Uh, Because, as you said here, this is such a shift from what had come before. And its sheer novelty can only be viewed as, I don't know, somewhat progressive, right? I mean, like you said, this isn't a retread, and it's not overly reliant on scratching nostalgia itches. Though, there are bits of that as well which are appreciated, but they're not necessary. You know, if we see, you know, the the one that always calls me back is the scene where where the New Mutants, they meet up with Cannonball, and we see the New Mutants team all in this group hug, and Mondo and Chamber are not part of this hug because they weren't part of the New Mutants. They're Generation X characters. You don't need to know that. to, to you Because know, you, the, the scene there is great as it is, but if you do know that, it means a little bit more, and you can sort of see that there is this generational shift between the two. So it's not necessary... That, uh, you know, the, the member berries and the homages, they're not necessary. But where they are, it means that much more for those of us in the know. So it's it's really, a lot of this is really, really well done. Andrew continues. Secondly, at first, at first read, I took similar view to you about the resurrection chambers and the devaluing of death in these books that results from it. Having reread the issues a few times now, I think that a lot of the plot element is pointing us back to a key scene in X-Force number 3, where Xavier is hatched post-assassination. Here I think we see Jean Grey outlining the fact that the, the fact that death is no longer an issue helps to heighten the heroic dimension because it allows them to focus on others rather than on themselves. On a related note, this aspect of the Hickman era also gets drawn out in the forthcoming, for you, Sword of X storyline, so it's a common theme that gets touched upon, and I think it provides a point of interest, how mutant society is strengthened or weakened by the fact that death is not the end. And yes, the resurrection protocols, and... I mean, you know, it's weird. Here we are, I mean, this is is episode 76, right? So we're 76 issues and episodes in. So... Let's say each issue is around 20 pages per, so we've read over 1,500 pages of Hox Pox Docs together in these, uh, in these past few months. And I still can't exactly put my finger on where I stand with the resurrection process. Uh, you know, I still don't know what I think about it, which might just be the point, right? Um, one thing I will say 
is that it's making me think about these comics and characters differently than I ever have before. So, I mean, that's definitely a novel experience. Uh, my analysis muscles, as they, as they may be, uh, are having to contort in very strange ways to make sense out of my, my own feelings, concerns, confusion, and misgivings about what's playing out on the page. That's not a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I still... If, you know, gun to my head, do I like these Resurrection Protocols or not? I couldn't say. Do I think they're a good idea? I couldn't say. Are they making me think? Yes, they are. Are they making me look at characters that I've been familiar with for over 30 years in a different way? Yes. Yes, they are. So, good thing, bad thing, couldn't say, but it is definitely a thing that is affecting the way I'm reading this. And I think that's a good thing at the end of the day. Andrew continues... The other point I've been wanting to make from listening through the episodes is the interesting aspect where the Marvel Universe is now split between human and mutant spheres. I know that you've expressed some reservations about the mutant portrayal here, particularly in the context of the X-Men plus Fantastic Four miniseries. For me, though, I think this gives us an interesting dynamic in the Marvel Universe. There's the temptation to view the split and set up as as making the mutants look more villainous than normal. However, I think that view comes from the fact that the reader is grounded in the Marvel Universe that we know, i.e. we share the space that the X-Men and Marvel heroes have cohabited over the years. Therefore, we share the mental space of Sue Storm or Peter Parker or Luke Cage. The mutants establishing themselves on Krakoa establishes them as other from the long-established perspective. I would argue, however, that when reading these books, that the reader now has to alter their own frame of mind and position ourselves on Krakoa alongside the mutants. We need to read these books through their eyes and mindset, the same way we read the other Marvel books from a New York City or London-centric etc. view. Previously, the dynamic has been between mutants and humans trying to occupy a shared space. We are now in a brand new disposition, beyond that of even Genosha, and this means we have a whole new view of the mutant experience. By constantly rotating between the Marvelverse and the Krakoan Xverse, we get a broader canvas for storytelling and a whole new challenge for humans and mutants beyond previous two-state solutions experimented with in the past. I, for one, am hooked on how this plays out in the long run. If only we didn't get keep getting dragged off to Otherworld. <laughs> and uh, yes, the pull of Otherworld is sometimes very, very strong, isn't it? Whether we want it to be or not. And your point is very well taken and very well stated. I, I, I appreciate the, uh, the analysis here for sure. And as I've said a few times already, even just in this very episode, so much of my problem, and this is Chris problems, this is not, this is not uh, rational comic reader problems, this is purely Chris problems, it's rooted in editorial rather than what's actually happening. Because I'm still burned from the lost decade you know back in one of the issues of hox pox they they showed the lost decade which was i think they what they showed was cyclops's dark phoenix which ugh, i think i'm still burnt from that um where you know this is uh, there was there was a 10-year span where the x-men were just stomped into the ground by marvel brass due to their little temper tantrum about how the they, the fact that they didn't have the movie rights since 2010, we've seen the X-Men decimated, no, no pun intended. You know, they were jobbed to the Avengers. And in order to accomplish that, we had long-standing X-Men characters, long-standing X-Men fan favorites, like Beast and Wolverine, side with the Avengers over the X-Men. And characters like Cyclops turn into Dark Phoenix and murder Professor X. That sucks. The X-Men family of titles became 
Loki shield books that the X-Men just so happened to show up in from time to time. You couldn't open an issue of any X-Book from the early 2010s and not see Maria Hill more than you'd see an X-Men character. It was just ridiculous. The handful of X-Characters that Marvel actually wanted to keep as valuable, they yanked them out of the X-Men books and added them to various Avengers teams and books. We had Uncanny Avengers. With, uh, I mean, Havoc was on that team, Rogue was on that team, Cable and Deadpool were on that friggin' team. Uh, Storm became an Avenger. They, they, uh, X-23 was part of Avengers Arena. They started yanking the characters that they cared about out of the X-Books and put them in the Avengers books. I hated it. Then, of course, we had the pathetic attempt at promoting the Inhumans. So when I got around to reading X-Men plus Fantastic Four... I probably brought some of my own baggage into it. And I viewed it as sort of another attempt to tamp down on the X-Men and make them look either like lesser heroes than the rest of the Marvel Universe or just as flat-out villains. Which, I mean, they came to the Richards' door to take their son. <laughs> I mean, that's not that's not heroic behavior. That's That's villainous, that's crazy behavior. And uh, what's worse is, you know, there was a bit of, like, sociopathy there because Xavier didn't see that that was villainous, or he didn't notice that, hey, this is a little bit off-putting, what I'm, what I'm doing here. I'm tearing this family apart because I feel like it. He didn't see anything wrong with that. And, I mean, a lot of this is just me being burned out and just seeing the X-Men get stomped on for a long time, but... I mean, what I see, I see, I guess. <laughs> uh, Andrew continues. Anyway, gotta go, but I'm glad I finally got around to writing into the show. It's been a total survival tool for me in 2020, and I appreciate the routine that you've given us for you giving us content every day. Comics have been my focus for escapism this year, and I've actually found that 2020 has been a very good year for comic output, with high-quality X-Books, Spider-Man and Venom books, a classic style of storytelling returning to Batman and Detective Comics, and some wonderful independence. About 18 months ago, I had nearly given up on comics, a mixture of bad behavior from pros and fans, plus a substandard product. Thankfully, whenever I needed them most, comics came through for me again this year. And your show has been a wonderful complement to some great books. And that's awesome, Andrew. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, and, you know, I got to say, this show and the comics surrounding it have been, I mean, I don't need to tell anyone here that 2020 has been a challenging year. Uh, putting together this show has been a coping and survival tool for me as well. Um, six months back, I never thought I'd be able to sit behind a microphone again and talk about comics. I thought that part of my life was done. I thought that was, you know, the microphone was going to get packed up and put in a closet, and that was going to be it. And now, this has become a real source of joy for me. Uh, it's helped keep me motivated. It's helped keep kept me on task. Uh, it's And it's even provided me with this wonderful sense of community that I never, ever expected to find. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um... To know that this show is a little bit of a help, it means the world to me. It, that is just so awesome. Thank you. Uh, we're going to wrap up with an email from our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG, and he is talking about the Chris and Reggie Channel Thanksgiving weekend 2020. He says, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I had a chance to catch up on all past episodes, so this will be a mashup of the past four days. 
It was good to hear Reggie's voice, even if it was for something as complicated as Sandman. I didn't really follow Sandman. I read some of it, but it was just not for me. Although I do like Death and Lucifer. And yes, uh, the Sandman uh, Gatherums here. uh, That was the final Sandman Gatherum that I put out on Black Friday. And uh, with the little gag in there that, you know, all the, all the Sandman readers wore black when I was growing up. So <laughs> Black Friday and uh, Sandman, it just worked for me. It also made it so I, was, I didn't have to take a break from cooking Thanksgiving dinner to record something that day. So it was a twofer for me. Um, but it was, uh, it was also, it was very nice for me to listen back to some of those as well. Uh, those... Um, those were the last shows that Reggie and I did before his aortic dissection in May of 2019. So those were uh, those were particularly special, um, and I haven't listened to them since um, back in May of 2019. So it's been almost two years since I've heard any of those, and it was it was very <laughs> it was very funny listening to them because for some of the books that we discussed, we were we were just so over it. And for some of them, we were excited. So it was. I got to hear us both excited and just like, let's get through this. So it was fun. It was a real nice cross section of uh, of some of our banter and stuff. It was really cool. And those Sandman Universe gatherums, they were a lot of fun for us to do for a few reasons. Um, first, because it was actually a request from a listener of Weird Science DC Comics that we cover them. They asked for us specifically, which was awesome because. Uh, you, you know me, I, I don't think anything I do is worth listening to So someone reaching out and saying Hey, I want Chris and Reggie to do these That just totally made my day It was so cool uh, Second, Reggie was a huge Sandman fan And he'd read the series a few times over I was familiar with Sandman But I never actually read the entirety of the original Game and Run So I, I'd read bits and pieces and here and again but I couldn't, I couldn't write a thesis on it. I couldn't tell you anything, really, about it outside of the handful of issues that I read. So, with The Gatherum, we were able to deliver a take from both a seasoned fan and a new reader, which I think offers a lot to the listener. Like, it could answer questions such as, like, would a new reader be able to follow this? Or do you need to have the, read the first volume to follow this? We were able to answer those questions with this because if there was something I didn't understand and I could ask Reggie, it's like, hey, do I need to have prior knowledge to understand this? And he would say either yes or no. It might be something that was brand new that I assumed was from the first volume or it might be something that was actually rooted in the Sandman lore. So it was really cool that we were able to do that because... Uh, contrastly, we we started our Gatherum series with the Young Animal books that DC put out in 2016. And we often asked each other, like, how would a new reader receive something like Doom Patrol? Doom Patrol was the flagship of the Young Animal run. And we figured that was probably the most potentially lucrative for DC. Because it was a, a main, oh, I guess a secondary DC property. Uh, though nowadays it, I think they have their own show, so... A little bit more popular than just a, a second stringer, but we would ask each other, like, hey, you know, we're reading this and we're enjoying it, but what would a new reader think? Would someone who'd never read the Arnold Drake run or the Morrison run, would they know, would, would they receive this the same way we would? 
Reggie and I were both huge Doom Patrol fans, and we knew the team inside and out. We, we've read the entirety of the runs several times over, so we were able, unable to assert whether or not this volume, the Gerard Way Young Animal volume, would be a good jumping-on point. So it was a question that we'd, we'd, let, we'd asked a few times but never really heard anything about. So being able to do that with the Sandman books was a lot of fun because... I was there as the new reader. He was there as the seasoned, you know, professional Sandman reader. So we were able to work off each other very well, I think, in that regard. Back to Mark here. Hearts of Darkness. And he's talking about From Claremont to Claremont, Episode 3B. He says, oh, man. Well, I'm not ashamed to say I like this book. It's not the greatest story ever, but for me, it signaled two things. First, team up of Punisher, Wolverine, and Ghost Rider. And the other is that those can, they can defeat Mephisto how? I don't know, but them being together made Blackheart plot and Mephisto nervous. I don't know if you ever read Ghost Rider when Danny Ketch was Ghost Rider, but the blood splashing on his face was because when he was introduced, it was something like when Bruce Banner got angry and turned into the Hulk. Danny would have to put some blood on the medallion on his bike in order to transform. Of course, they didn't keep that in continuity. Marvel in the 90s. And there is a sequel to Hearts of Darkness that I hope I find someday. I know it's not the best, but I liked it. I'm still working on the soundtrack of my life. I've gone through lots of changes in my life, and it's hard to pinpoint the songs that are more meaningful to me. Now, Hearts of Darkness wasn't a bad book. Um, It certainly wasn't the piece of high literature I thought it was back in 1991, but (laughs) it was a good enough time. And no, I never actually read the Danny Catch Ghost Rider, Uh, so this information is all new for me. Thank you. It's weird, like, I I live in, you know, the, the, the quarter bins and the 50-cent bins and just the back-issue bins in general. And there are certain properties that so seldom show up. You know, over on DC's side, Wonder Woman never shows up in these books, in these boxes. And I don't know why. Maybe maybe there was a, you know, smaller print runs, or maybe people who buy Wonder Woman don't get rid of their books. I don't know. Over on Marvel's side, it's Ghost Rider of the 90s. The 90s Ghost Rider. So the Danny Ketch stuff is hard to come by. And those were books that would sell out very, very quickly and just be marked up you know, twice, three times the price pretty quick because Ghost Rider was a really, really hot property back then, despite the fact that Howard Mackey was writing it. Uh, now, I'm also looking forward to hearing your soundtrack of your life here because those have been some very, very fun discussions. Uh, for those listening to this show who don't listen to From Claremont to Claremont episodes, uh, a gimmick that I'm running there for these segments is that I'm asking my co-hosts to share with us the songs that would be on the soundtrack of their lives. It's provided a great bit of insight and a whole lot of fun conversation because, I mean, there's just so much meat on that bone. And so if anyone listening would like to share the soundtrack of their lives, please do. Please do. It's a fun exercise to do, even if you don't share it with, uh, with me or anybody. It's a fun exercise because it really makes you think about moments in your life and just what songs affect you in certain ways, even if they have nothing to do with your life, just a song that affects you. I think there's a lot of fun discussion there. Um, The whole thing with From Claremont to Claremont is I'm trying to make it more than just me and a co-host talking about a comic book, right? I want it to be a little bit different than that because I try to offer something that you're not going to get everywhere else. Um... So I've, I, I integrate gimmicks into each of these segments, and so far the co-hosts have all been very, 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 very kind in <laughs> indulging me. 
this is the third episode that we're putting together right now. The first episode, it kind of included a life and times bit. So I would ask my co-host about their times as a comics fan, you know, their comic fandom history, their secret origin, if you will, how they discovered comics, what comics they loved, when they left comics, when they came back to comics, all that sort of stuff was part of the first episode. And uh, from Claremont to Claremont has like eight or nine segments. So, I mean, it's it's a long show. Uh, for episode two, I ran my co-host through the Marvel Bullpen Bulletin's profile questionnaire. Uh, basically, as a way to facilitate my asking them a bunch of silly questions that would never come up in conversation. You know, things like, you know, who would play you in a movie on about your life? You know, stuff like that. If you're a fan of Marvel from the 80s, on the Bullpen Bulletin's page, they would often... Uh, maybe for like the second half of the 80s They had a little Like basically a trading card for their For their editorial team And it would just be a battery of Silly questions about How they got into comics And uh, what their pet peeves are Where they were born, what their hobbies are Talking about their unfulfilled ambitions Stuff like that And I just was taken With these, uh, we covered a lot of these On Moratory Mondays Where we would We would just read through these things and really had a blast with it. And I thought it would be really cool to do a pod file, you know, with with my co-host going through these questions and just seeing how silly it got. And also finding finding out that you you, you do learn more about one another that way. Uh, It was really, really fun. Now for episode three, of course, it's the soundtracks. And uh, so far, they've been a blast. They've been really, really cool, really insightful, and... uh, not not easy, not easy to compile. Uh, I'm I'm working on mine right now, and it's it's hard. It's really hard, but it's also so much fun, and it leads to a lot of introspection. And uh, you know, when you when you when you finish it, when you're done with it, you, you learn something about someone that you're you're friends with. You know, you learn things you didn't know, and I think that's kind of the tone that I, I want for all the shows on this channel, where. You know, this isn't just a show. It's it's a club. You know, it's a we're we're in this together. We're on this journey together, and you know, if we get to know each other a bit better in the process. I, I think that's only a good thing. So, I do have more crazy gimmicks in mind for future installments. So, stay tuned if that's your thing. Uh, back to Mark here. He continues. Major X lapsed. Um, pass. <laughs> I would think that Wolverine or Deadpool would make this better, but. No, I guess he's not the best he is at what he does. <laughs> oh, Major X was an experience. Uh, thankfully, it's one that's now behind us. Um, all I can say about Major X and Major X Lapsed is that I sincerely hope that nobody spent any actual money on Major X in order to keep up with the show, because I would feel very, very guilty if that was the case. Oof. The first issue, sure, because that one's still going up in value for some ridiculous reason. But the rest of it, eh, you don't need it. Uh, and finally, uh, back to Mark, he says, Kate not being able to resurrect. Oh, Marvel and their old gimmicks all over again. It's I'm interested in finding out why she can't resurrect, and especially since we know that she will be. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, Mark wraps up with, keep up the great work, Chris. Good or bad, I'm along for the ride, and hopefully Marvel will look harder into making these characters the best they were and are in our hearts. So thank you so much for uh, for the very insightful email, Mark. I always appreciate hearing from you, and I'm happy that you are 
along for the ride. And I'm happy everybody's along for the ride. And uh, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me and uh, share some of your thoughts, and of course, uh, if you have some time and want to put together the soundtrack of your lives, that's also very, very welcome. Um, I'm hoping to maybe put together like Spotify playlists so we'll all have the soundtrack of our lives just there you know so if you want to if you want to listen to the soundtrack of Chris's life and hear some like weird yacht rock and christmas music and all sorts of stuff you'll you'll be able to do that whenever you feel like it but uh yeah if you have anything send it my way uh now you can reach me at ace comics on twitter or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com you can find blog posts and show notes at chrisisoninfinitearths.com We also have xlapsed.chrisisoninfinitearths.com You can join us on the Facebook group At 90s X-Men And of course the entire Chris and Reggie Audio Archives Is there at your fingertips At chrisandreggie.podbean.com I think that's where we will leave it today uh, This was a long one I'm, I'm sorry And <laughs> thank you for sticking around If you did Um one more giant thank you to everyone for sharing your time, your thoughts, everything. It's been an absolute blast. And uh, like uh, our friend Mark said, good or bad, we're in this for the long haul. So thank you to everybody. And uh, until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. <laughs>